that all the time because I agree with you. It's impossible to、um, have a dialogue if guilt is involved. Yes. Yeah. There is nothing because guilt always is in some way coupled with shame, and shame is one of the most、yes. powerful human emotions, and it's the one that makes people、um, people will do a lot of things to avoid feeling shame. Yes, I hate that shit. Shame. So how do we how do we do that? I mean, I really spend a lot of time thinking about that. How do we create a space free of shame and guilt? And also, you know, free of violence, where we can talk about certain things, so that certain conversations can move forward, so that practices can move forward, you know, so that we can embody the world in a, a, a better way, safer way, friendlier way. I don't know the answer, but I also think about it, and I think it requires a great. Massive amount of skill and of love, yeah, and of long-term hope.、Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, I, I would say that these things are.、Uh, They are self-perpetuating, and what we're actually dealing with is to zoom out a bit. Any any damaging habits that pass from generation to generation, and that could be education or drug use or domestic violence or self-mutilation、mm-hmm. or emotional ignorance to oneself and to others. Like any of these things. Doesn't even have to be racism, but all of these things get passed from generation, and and the the question becomes how to break the cycle、mm. of that perpetuation. That at no stage, because you want to say that something is not good enough, but as soon as somebody becomes a villain, then they stop being a person. Yeah, and I it is my. Belief that almost in all cases we are the the product of our environment.、Mm. It, I think. And I don't know how agency sits within that,、huh? or how self betterment sits within that. Well, you know, I often think that. That, uh, you know, to return to that question from the beginning, that or that thing that we said, that there's a certain inertia almost in how certain conversations are supposed to go.、Um, mm. You know, you there are expected questions and expected answers. Mm. Mm. I, I think that there's a lot that can happen just by uh, uh, disrupting that, acting against it. And one thing that I've always enjoyed, and this is also why I like the format of the long. Form conversation is to say, okay, well, we've just stepped on a, a landmine of a topic.、Um, <laughs> let's just stay. Let's just stay where we are. You know, let's not freak out. Let's not end、uh, this conversation、yeah. right now. Let's just, you know, we're all a bit upset, but let's see why. Let's, you know, let's stay with this feeling. It's not. We're not going to die. It's not going to kill us. It's just a little bit of discomfort, and we can we can get through this. Yeah. And that's where the need for love and long-term identity and thinking 
and skill. All of those things are needed for somebody to stay in the place where they just stepped on a landmine of social topic. Yeah. Isn't it? Because someone immediately goes, oh, my God, I'm the villain. And someone immediately goes, oh, my God, I'm being silenced. (laughs) 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 And actually, you haven't, nothing has actually happened yet. That you've only just made the first step. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the answer to any of the things. I just know that there are, they are a crazy mess. And that with each with each step forward we generate a new story to tell ourselves but each story omits things and highlights things mm. and in omitting some things and highlighting other things we uh, omit people from the conversation and in the same way that in the past we have omitted um say i don't know a hundred years ago in australia if you were not if you were not born with a penis and also owned land you could not vote mm. So that was two qualifiers. And so we were omitting everybody who didn't have those two qualifiers. And then we slowly are omitting less people. Um, but then who are you voting for? Because it's the same people <laughs> that are up there to be voted for. <laughs> but now there comes to this situation where we are not the only generation living in Australia. There are younger generations and older generations and there are memories that are living in Australia that are, that are 100 years old, that are 80 years old, that are 60 years old. Even if they're sketchy, they have their own stories of what it was like when they were empowered and what it is like now that they are being omitted from the conversation because Australia has to move on and become something new and better and different and less shit than it was. But that, that thing that we are like disregarding as the past is them is tied to their identity and that's the biggest hurdle for me is how to say to somebody who is stuck in the self-identity of needing to break land of needing to conquer environments of needing to be some kind of um living embodiment of all those anzac statues that are in small country towns around australia Mm -hmm. How do we, how, do, how are they still part of the conversation of what we can change? Because disregarding them also doesn't get us anywhere. I wish that, um, I wish that people were more prepared to identify as themselves and less, felt less urged to identify with a specific one group. Mm. I think it would do us all a lot of good. Because very often when that identification with a group happens, people feel collective guilt. And that's very easy. Or collective outrage. You know, it's very easy to feel guilt on behalf of someone who is not you. (laughs) Yeah, yes. Yeah. And then I wonder if secularism through capitalism is leading us towards individualization of all people. And then I also have concerns about how that pushes us ever more alone and into um, schizophrenia and other psychological disorders that are caused by the crumbling of communities and being Mm -hmm. able to just be with a group rather than to be entirely this own self. (laughs) 
I will say, you know, uh, Zizek through Lacan uh, talks a lot about the coercion of group, you know, you know, mateship, um, this sort of notion of um, uh, belonging in a group, meaning that you have to cover up for them. Yes. And I've been thinking, you know, recently how identity politics obviously needs to die um, but <laughs> because because isn't it just the most capitalist thing that you know uh, if you have to you have to belong to a group of people and obviously you're going to be segmented through your uh, class which is purchasing power or through your taste you know which is also class uh, or taste in people or you know um, so these markers of, you know, your sexual orientation, your class, your your uh, race, these are all basically, uh, this is all basically belonging to a demographic, which is excellent for marketing departments everywhere in capitalism. Mm. But what, you know, we, ha- we seem to have forgotten that idea of belonging, uh, being related to other people as, you know, someone's son, someone's daughter, someone's sibling, someone's friend, someone's co-worker, someone's employer, someone's employee, someone's neighbor, you know, these relationships that are not based on whether you like them, but that are based on having a functional relationship with them. You know, having a relationship of responsibility or co-responsibility. I think that those, you know, that that form of belonging, I find it feels a lot more liberating. It feels a lot less oppressive because you're not all the same. You're actually quite different. What brings you together is that you have some kind of um, thing that you do together that's quite specific mm-hmm. and very practical. Yeah, a, an operation that needs to be achieved. One might even call it a co-operation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, And these are the, you know, when you, when you talk about your... Um, uh, oh God, I will use the wrong word. Was it camouflage trainer? Yes. You know, yeah. what gives, what, what I really like it's about that story is okay. that he has an, an incredibly operational relationship to um, his trainees. This, to pigment. Yeah, this is true. It's pure and it's very uh, pragmatic. And that's what gives it that yeah. clarity, I think. Yeah. I mean, I remember another trainer that was speaking about um, different body shapes when you're forming a section. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you're a corporal, maybe you'll have a section of 8 to 12 um, other troops with you, and it is up to you to load them up and assign them in the best ways possible. And it is not in anybody's best interest to load the, like, to load the slow person up with the radio just to make them feel good because Mm. that radio needs to always be next to the commanding officer. But then at the same time, it's not in anyone's interest to ignore that there's a dude who is 20 kilos heavier than everybody else and give him just the same rifle as everybody else. You need to give him the machine gun and all of the artillery and all of the extra ammunition because he has a physical prerequisite that will be at the better disposal of everybody else in the unit in the section Mm. and so that kind of but i don't know how far this goes because there's so much of our self-identity and belonging that we inherit and then beyond that that we create Mm -hmm. and that we trust when other people are on board with it 
Um, and this is where I hope that the power of the single mm, question or the, the, the question that we think or the question that we ask the people that we're working with and on and through and around and living with, um, how we disrupt the patterns of conversation with a better question will encourage and facilitate their practice at thinking in that pattern rather than this other pattern mm. that is a default not through consideration, unfortunately, that is a default through ease or convenience. Mm. And so the discussion, this like Australianism of, hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Okay, then you move on to the thing. And no one's actually asked because no one cares and no one's actually answered because no one cares. Mm. And that makes it very hard to ever really ask somebody. How are you? How they are. And so you have to find novel ways. You have to reinvent the way because that has been hijacked uh, and made redundant. And I try and push back against that by not engaging with it, by using g'day as a greeting <laughs> instead of these other things. I mean, I especially turn it up when when I was in New York or when I've been in Europe because I want to be identified as an Australian rather than as um, a, an American or a Canadian or... Mm, or a Brit. Like, I definitely do not want to be <laughs> identified as a Brit. <laughs> oh, wow. How? Wh- why? Well, it's like uh, that's not my identity. All right. Uh-huh. So... So... it's complex yeah wow yeah yeah i like i I like i like that notion i like that idea of um disruptive questions of asking the thing that people don't expect you to ask in a particular moment because it's it's very brechtian you know it alienates the the moment or alienates it it makes it strange you sort of go, oh, this mm. thing that I expected to happen, it just didn't happen. I could, yes, I could. And the the skill for me in my mind is how to do it so that people stay with you, and don't think that you are the alien. Mm. Just think that this way of engaging is novel, and so then they're with you even more so, and not uh, wary of you. Yeah. Yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about that, how to do that, you know, how to get to certain new places um, while um, uh, creating an environment of safety, of sufficient safety to actually, once we get to that space, actually do something with it, you know. <laughs> yes. Okay. Tell me, I want, I want all your wisdom and insights about how to do this. Oh, well, I mean, I don't really... I don't, I'm not sure that I'm quite there yet, but I do know that one, <laughs> one important part is to be clear about the rules. Ooh, is, okay, yes. Although, do you ever watch South Park? I love South Park. <laughs> <laughs> because they have this ongoing thing that either everything's up for comedy or nothing is. Mm-hmm. And that is the only rule. And the reason they keep coming back to it is because of the pressure put on them about what the rules are, about what is and is not available for comedy. Mm. And that's from trans politics to representing the prophet Muhammad. Like, across that whole gamut, they're 
pushing back against letting somebody else tell them that there are specific nuanced rules about what is open for discussion and what is not. I am very, very, very fond of South Park, I have to say. (laughs) Um, Precisely for that reason, you know, that they're very Mm. unbiased. The authors are very unbiased in what they um, uh, make fun of. Um, and, And I think that serves them well because, you know, they do have a... There is a sense of even-handedness in South Park, <laughs> you know, a kind of a sense mm. that there's no real hidden agenda there. That, that you know, no, they're not really too. sort of kind of right-wing radicals or left-wing radicals that are just sort of pretending to make fun of everyone. It's not. That's not what it is. Mm. Um, I don't know. You know, with my with my students, for example, and we do have, I have to say, uh, I, the teaching that I do is very important to me as part of my um, thinking about art uh, practice because of the particular need to uh, uh, show duty of care and yet to also yes. teach. Um, yes. I have a rule that I make very clear when we start our conversations, which is that uh their job as students is to read, to think, and to speak up. And uh, it's not their job to worry about whether they're offending someone. It's not their job to worry about whether they're talking too much. And it's also not their job to worry about whether what they're saying is appropriate or inappropriate. You know, that's it's my job to adjudicate that. Because, because I don't want them to self-censor. But, uh, Until but it, you have educated them in the better way to self-censor. Mm-hmm. Because part of what they learn, really, I imagine, is what parts of themselves are currently acceptable and what parts of themselves could do with a bit more work. Well, what do you mean? Uh, I would say that there is no separating education from... Hopefully, there's no separating education from growth. And the agenda with education is that you will learn something that will grow you, Mm -hmm. that will cause change. And when you are adjudicating, then what you're adjudicating is so that they know what is and is not open and acceptable and how to approach all of those things. Yeah, I mean, we don't get to uh, we don't get to situations where someone says something very offensive to something very very. I don't think that it's ever actually happened. You know, people will event every so often. A student will say, "Why did you say that? Why did you do that? I felt such and such," and then there will be a very productive exchange. Mm. Um, And we should not shy away from those exchanges. You know, we should not shut down conversation before it gets to that point of, oh, what you've just said made me a bit uncomfortable. Why did it make you yeah. uncomfortable? You know, do you want to share it with us? You know, let the other person hear you out. Okay, how do you, f- how, you know, what do you think about how this person, you know, got upset by what you said? And these are conversations that take a few minutes at most and everyone learns quite a lot. And what's most important is that the rapport between two people is preserved. Mm, well, probably what's most important is that there is a shared rule of no physical violence. <laughs> well, yes, I don't, I don't really spell <laughs> that out in my class, I have to admit. <laughs> like we're still, no matter how different everybody in the class is, there's still that understanding and 
we we are, are are all subscribed to it. Whereas there are a lot of situations where if somebody's opinion differs enough from yours for you to be outraged by it, then that is a legitimate and standard response to make them reconsider saying that thing again. Is physical violence? Yes. But we have laws against that. Absolutely, we got laws against tax evasion, but. There are some things that people um, resort to when they feel like an injustice is being done. Mm. And if, I mean, I'm just, I'm just pointing out that we are lucky that, that these discussions are impossible if we don't all at least subscribe that there will be no crossing of physical violence line within these discussions or in response to these discussions. And that's like that's a privilege for us to have these re- environments. That's true, and it never occurred to me before. So, which must be the definition of blind privilege. <laughs> <laughs> it's not only us white cis males who are blind to our privilege. This is true. It's I would bring it up world. in class. I remember I was choreographing um, for a crump film clip and the producer wanted me to take sunscreen out to all these boys that were also in the film clip but i was the only white boy and everybody else all the other boys were like 14 year old dudes from sudan who laughed at me when i tried to give them sunscreen yeah what was what what was your producer's what was your producer's um ethnicity skin color i don't know she was also fair-skinned she could have got sunburned there you go (laughs) (laughs) but the funny thing is i got a taxi many months later and the dude told me that any kind of skin product is quite an effeminate action within um Mm. different countries within african culture so any kind of moisturizer or sunscreen is like quite a girly thing to do yeah but I lathered it on because, you know, these crow's feet on the side, I want, I want just enough to look like I've got wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it gets very complicated very quickly. I don't burn very easily. I've got olive skin. Um, I, I burn in Hobart, but <laughs> pretty much nowhere else yeah, in Australia. Um, yeah. I am used to everyone, uh, or, you know, the sort of Anglo-Australians around me, me burn very, very quickly. So I carry sunscreen for them because oh, that's it, nice. it upset it, it sort of distresses me to sort of watch a person literally get Crisping. red in front of my eyes <laughs> um in 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 croatia i would say that yeah i never thought about it but i'd say yeah sunscreen is a is an effeminate thing I, mm. I don't know many men that would sort of just wear it but this is exactly why we should talk about this stuff because Australia is a multi-ethnic, multicultural country where, you know, there's so many intersections of... Yeah. I hope that we can one day get beyond multicultural into some kind of nuanced, shared yeah, culture. I think multicultural is somehow divisive within its diversity. Yeah. And that's a shame. Absolutely. And if we don't talk about these sort of nuanced, you know, kind of misconceptions that wearing sunscreen, you know, makes you more like a woman, or, you know. Or that that's a terrible thing for some reason. There were these excellent, when I was in Vietnam, the um, women had these excellent, like, ponchos, effectively, that had fold-down pieces of fabric that went over your 
hands and fingers like mittens mm. and it, w- it was purely for sun exposure because their idea of beauty is to be lighter skinned than mm. darker skinned so whenever you're riding the scooter you put on this poncho and the neck folds up and covers the skin of the back of your neck and then these wrist flaps fold down and cover the back of your hands and I tried to buy one they don't make them for men and they don't make them big enough in a woman's size for me because they are Vietnamese women are smaller than like Anglo-Australian men on the gen generally uh-huh. gen speaking and is but, and the tan is is good like it's it's a masculine sort of feature no i think just those particular garments mm-hmm. are not worn by men that's yeah. all how interesting you know i remember my first or one of my first jobs in melbourne was on ligon street um in a in an Italian restaurant which was actually run by Lebanese by Lebanese family but doesn't matter um and I was there sort of pretending to be Italian even though I'm not and but we were very much kind of uh, uh, within the same sort of general Mediterranean uh, tribe we kind of identified as the same people and I still remember my boss um my boss once said to me Yana Uh, a real man does not have milk in his coffee after 12 o'clock. And it was, you know, it's a very, very random It's attribute. so random, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I love that shit. I mean, I've got a whole project that I'm working on called The Blokes Project, <laughs> which is basically the, Austra- the story of how to be Australian and how random it is. Oh, it just seems to me like you can use your your mask privileges very quickly. It's enough to have a cafe latte at 1pm and then you... <laughs> you can. And then that puts everyone on the defensive and then they need to uphold it even more violently because it's so easy to lose them. Oh, and what a shame. It's so hard. It just seems so hard to be a man. It's like you always have to be vigilant. <laughs> yeah, well, the nice, the other uh, other way to go is that you can't have something taken away from you if you give it away. Oh, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful thought. I, I, wish, <laughs> I wish more men knew that. <laughs> But I, you know, I'm lucky. I can only call luck of the time that I grew up and the people I grew up around that put time and effort into me and then and like my own blindness and ambivalence towards which people were going to accept me at which point in time but that's all just luck huh you can't be anything but that so you want to steer us back to why I run a podcast yep uh in what way I mean it is a lot of effort <laughs> and so what is your biggest hope for this effort well every year i think about audio stage again from scratch you know what should it do this year um is it worth doing again and so on i've never it started because i felt that there were certain things that we needed to talk about Um, like we, there were certain topics that needed to be spoken about so that we can all move on, you know, and and talk about them with greater nuance. Um, because I, I think of um, I think of these sort of collective conversations as uh, something with a a, 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 a timeline. Yeah. You know, you Absolutely. start. 
you crack a topic open and then everyone has an opinion and then it moves on one step and then someone brings in another aspect of it and then everyone has an opinion and so on. We all And we all grow with it. Um, and I've never felt like it necessarily needed to be me doing it. It could be anyone. And I think it's great that now there's lots of people making uh having these conversations obviously there's you with wombat radio which is so lovely because of the length of the conversations um and just the the sort of variety of guests that you have you know then obviously there was okay radio uh uh to start it all um then you know now there are all sorts of long, you know, podcasts with these long conversations with people about craft, about art, about the the art, I don't know, the art market, about dance, about f- embodied practice. And the more we talk, it's like the more we fill in the gaps. Mm. And it just makes us all wiser and more, I think, generous, perhaps, with each other. I hope so. And I hope that it means that thing we don't wait until something is dead and then we taxidermy it and put it on a shelf before we think that we know it, that we can continue to know it and own it through the process of what form it will take. That's so true. I was really struck by your story about Heath Ledger um, before. The, you know, this idea that you have to be gone for someone to appreciate what you've done. Mm. Yeah, or be retired or be old. or. I, yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are going to work with a lot of excellent things and then tap out and move on when they're 30 or 40. And then they will never get their 70th birthday retrospective because... Now they are a computer programmer or a diplomat or they're not doing dance anymore, but they made some excellent dance and had some excellent thoughts and now that's lost. Yeah, I think it takes real um, wisdom uh, in the mo- you know, to recognize when someone's doing something interesting and worth, rec- you know, worth preserving, worth remembering while they're doing it. You know, and not five or ten years later, and then being like, "Oh, we should have appreciated you." <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's also you just luck. Like I'm sure half the people that are on Wombat Radio may not be interesting in the time or later, but maybe I'm wrong, and maybe it that like that actually doesn't matter because it's also operating on the other level of forcing that person to step up and speak about and practice answering the questions that I have. It's a little bit selfish, actually. Mm. Oh, well. I wonder if, you know, the art, the the performing arts market, let's call it a market, uh, has stolen this idea from the visual arts, you know, where it's it's much easier to deal with a dead artist. Um, Mark Twain wrote this phenomenal short story, you know, 150 years ago about, you know, these four... uh, French painters, you know, starving and can't sell their work. Um, And then they decide that the best way to get some income is to, for one of them to um, become a dead artist. And, you know, they sort of 
toss the dice and decide which one's going to die and then they kind of advertise that he's dead and obviously his paintings suddenly become extremely you know treasured and highly prized and he's you know he spends the rest of his life in some sort of cottage in the French countryside painting and his three friends are selling you know his agents selling these rare paintings by a dead genius Uh, we really don't want to i mean that's not really a good model is it well maybe that's what i i should do with wombat radio (laughs) (laughs) like just have the podcast taken over or something (laughs) (laughs) wouldn't that be wonderful interviewing you could interview artists as if they were dead that's not a bad idea it's a lovely concept you can have it <laughs> the generosity <laughs> endless um, is there anything that you hope that I will do or that you will do more of with the podcasts that we're doing or that you hope that artists will get not get out of that artists will bring to the table when we have discussions with them or that we could bring more to the table like do you wish that we shut up more and they spoke more or do you wish that people broke down in tears like it's a four corners kind of discussion <laughs> on 730 report or do you wish that there was less um, of this uh, humility or more humility or less uh, uh, neomania where people just want to speak listen to what's new but they don't want to listen to like the old okay radio things or do you wish that maybe there was more neomania and less prestige of what has been around for a long time and holding on to that notion i don't know i'd like you to answer that question as well because i genuinely don't know i feel like for a really long time i felt very frustrated i felt like the way we talked about the performing arts you know and particularly dance Um, was just not good enough and there were so many things that I felt were missing um, including you know podcasts and Hmm. now I feel like it's you know we're I'm in this rare moment where I feel that a lot of people are doing a lot of different interesting things and it's great and it feels like it feels like um you know I know that I'm satisfied with the state of uh, um, the world when I feel like uh, people are doing the work. Like I've outsourced my various kind of nascent ideas. You know, like people are running around doing things that I think are great. And so I don't have to do it. I can just stay at home and read mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, you know, what I really enjoy about uh, choreography and, uh, and this goes around dance is just the various ways of recording the body and recording uh, embodied knowledge and you know particularly with uh, video and I, I would love there be I, w- I would love there to be a way for podcasts to uh, delve into that you know how can we audio record uh, physical movement and that kind of um, embodied practice but I don't really have an answer for that it's not like I think the answer is obvious and no one's doing it <laughs> <laughs> what about you um can you say the question back to me so I what, can hear it what do you, um I think I think you said what do you think 
uh, we should be doing? What should there be more of? What should there be less of? Should we have more appreciation of novelty or more mm. appreciation of what has been? Um, uh, what is missing right now? I, I am hoping for and working towards an exploded view of all things, which is not to say a deconstruction. I don't want a deconstruction because I think things belong in the bundles that they are in and affect each other within those bundles and those bundles will change and be reconfigured. But that when you see a diagram of say a, um, a distributor that goes on an engine and it is an exploded view diagram, you see the whole thing, but then you see the things that go into it and you see what could be hacked or jimmied or swapped in and out and you see the action that this thing is taking if these parts are assembled in this way but it, that it might take if it's an assembled in this way i would like more decoupling <clears throat> of the aesthetics of the thing of the agenda of the thing of the activity itself underneath the thing and the legitimacy and where it comes from within all of those efforts. That's a lot. What a beautiful thing to say. I, what a fantastic conversation this has been. Well, maybe you and I are really lucky that we get to practice. I think so. I think so, yeah. You know, um, the, for me, what's, uh, what I really appreciate about having a podcast is that uh, people say the most extraordinary things. <laughs> well, I mean, so you know, you, you sort of, um, obviously when you're preparing a conversation, you sort of, uh, you think about the questions and you sort of uh, map where you think, the, you know, what you think the person will answer. Um, but people just say the most extraordinary thought-provoking things and they were, um, you know, I remember um, Matthew Day the choreographer, I was asking him about political, you know, politics or queer politics. And he said, well, you know, but a revolution is just turning around in the same spot. And it re that's really what it is. Revolution, you know, to, to, to revolve is to turn around in one spot. And it had never occurred to me before. I think about it quite a lot. Such is the power of dance and embodied movement knowledge oh what a fantastic thing to point out you know um you know there was a time when i interviewed marcel dorney a theater director and he said I don't, i'm not entirely sure what the question was but you know as part of his answer he said you know um in I, I think that in Australia, art is supposed to represent the majority position a lot more than in other countries or in other cultures. And I often think about that sentence because as, you know, years pass, I'm starting to understand what he meant by that. Mm, I would it, counter that proposal with that art is so far from a majority representation that even the art that represents what the majority wants the art to represent is still not representing a majority of Australians. Mm. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that I have a position in regards to that that thought, but he he definitely, you know, 
he was I'm starting to understand what he meant by that what mm. he was what had formed his thinking and I think that's the real sort of uh, that's the real treasure of having conversations like these that they leave you with thoughts that, that you can then you can ponder for a long time that can enrich your 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 thinking yeah. your practice and I mean ultimately your life yeah you know these conversations make us all smarter <laughs> yeah I hope mm. so and I, I I think that the power of a conversation is listening and I think it's a skill that we could all get better at very much alright so do you think we have I think we've done really well alright thank you so much this was a really lovely conversation and I like the balance between the two of us talking it very rarely happens oh yeah is it because when you're running a podcast you don't give yourself the permission to think that what you have to say in response is as, is, is as important and you're in the mindset still of mining what they may say I sometimes fall into this trap yeah yeah it's yeah it, that <laughs> must be it yeah it's very lovely to have an actual conversation this is great <laughs> I agree it's very nourishing isn't it mm. Mm. yeah to have someone or maybe yeah maybe it's just that you are I think you know you uh, as an interviewer yourself I think you're a lot more uh, um, you're a better listener than most people I talk to <laughs> I'm trying to be better yeah well most people I talk to you know are talkers and <laughs> it's nice to talk to a nice to talk to a listener you know a talker but also a listener but anyway, okay, I should okay, probably um, we should probably finish now. Okay. Ciao, thank you mm. very much. Thank you too. Have a good um, weekend. Bye. Bye.